This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Either political party can afford to be disappointed in the results of the election, but the country cannot afford to have the result tainted by the suspicion of illegal or false returns. Hamilton Fish. The whole matter of the presidency seems to me to be simple and to admit of a peaceful solution. The machinery for such a contingency as threatens to present itself has been all carefully prepared. It only requires lubricating owing to disuse. That would be right enough, for the law provided that, in failure to elect duly by the people, the House shall immediately elect the President and the Senate the Vice President. Some tribunal must decide whether the people have duly elected a president. Winfield Scott Hancock If a presidential election should be next controlled by abusive or corrupt influence exercised by the government upon the voters in particular states, and a vista be opened of third terms, and terms in indefinite series, displaying the undisputed supreme mastery of the office-holding class in successive elections, our government would have degenerated into a bad copy of the worst governments of the worst ages. Samuel J. Tilden We all see that the tremendous revolution which has passed over the Southern people has left them impoverished and prostrate, and we are all deeply solicitous to do what may constitutionally be done to make them again prosperous and happy. They need economy, honesty, and intelligence in their local governments. They need to have such a policy adopted as will cause sectionalism to disappear and that will tend to wipe out the color line. They need to have encouraged immigration, education, and every description of legitimate business and industry. We do not want a united North nor a united South. We want a united country. Rutherford B. Hayes We are quite privileged in the United States that most of our transitions of power, even from one faction to the other, have gone smoothly. However, as we've seen, historically, that is not always the case. It is one of those cases that I'd like to examine in this special episode of the Presidencies of the United States. Welcome, dear listener. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Before we dive in, I'd like to thank a few folks for providing the intro quotes for this episode. For Winfield Scott Hancock, we had Dave Broker of the Industrial Revolutions podcast. Have you ever wondered how the technologies that have become a part of our everyday lives came to be and how the technological innovations of the last 250 years have impacted our societies, governments, economies, and environments? If so, then you should give the Industrial Revolutions podcast a listen. With each episode, Dave takes us through how all these things came together to create the world that we live in today. To check out the Industrial Revolutions podcast, go to industrialrevolutionspod, that's all one word, dot com, or search for Industrial Revolutions wherever fine podcasts can be found. Giving voice to Rutherford B. Hayes was Kenny Ryan of the Abridged Presidential Histories podcast. As the name suggests, Kenny goes through the presidencies a bit faster than we do on this podcast. 
However, in less than an hour with each episode, Kenny provides some great insight, not just into the individuals who have served as president, but also a glimpse of the world that each of them lived in as they assumed the office. To give it a listen, after you get done with this episode, search for Abridged Presidential Histories in your podcast app of choice. I'll also have links to both Dave and Kenny's podcast on the source notes page for this episode. Finally, I asked my husband Alex to lend his vocal talents for Samuel Tilden. Long before I had patrons and followers, Alex was the first supporter of this endeavor, and I can't thank him enough for all of the love, encouragement, and advice that he's given me over the years. I couldn't be where I am today without him. Je t'aime toujours, mon cher. When I considered the four presidential elections in American history that were the most unprecedented, I have to admit that I did consider 1876. But ultimately, what's unprecedented about that contest is not the election itself, but rather the aftermath. As we're going through a rather interesting post-election season ourselves here in the latter days of 2020, it seemed like a good time to look back at the 1876 election to glean what we can from the lessons of that experience in order to move forward. I'd argue that the last third of the 19th century is traditionally the least studied period in presidential history, but I think that has been changing thanks to the more recent work of historians looking into the Reconstruction Era and the Gilded Age and starting to shift the narrative from the idea of the indistinguishable bearded presidents. Before we can dive into 1876, we need a little context. In that year, Ulysses S. Grant was finishing up his second term as president. Though Grant is an off-studied subject when it comes to the Civil War, his presidency fades into the bearded obscurity. While his administration is held up as an example of government corruption, by and large, it seems through the extant primary documentation that Grant was not connected with it in any other way than a misplaced trust being given to less-than-scrupulous individuals. Still, the corruption of the Grant administration was very much a factor in the election. Indeed, it was in part due to the scandals that had plagued his presidency that Grant did not seek a third term as president. That wasn't to say, however, that there weren't Republicans who wished to nominate him for a third term. As noted by historian Gene Edward Smith, in the latter part of his second term, quote, mainstream Republicans, eager to latch on to the president's coattails, began to lobby the White House for Grant to seek a third term. Throughout the country, the press was inundated with stories touting the president's electoral clout and speculating on his availability. The president's staff and even First Lady Julia Grant were caught up in the frenzy. Grant said nothing. On May 29, 1875, the president finally spoke. He wrote out a statement, then called his cabinet to meet after Sunday dinner. After he read out his statement to them, he spoke with his wife, Julia, sharing the news that he was not going to seek a third term in office. In his statement, Grant, though expressing an appreciation for the opportunity that he had been given to serve the public in his two terms, asserted that, quote, I am not, nor have I ever been, a candidate for renomination. I would not accept a nomination if it were tendered, unless it should come under such circumstances as to make it an imperative duty, circumstances not likely to arise. Thus, the field was open for someone new to step in, but Republicans were initially divided as to who that should be. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The former Speaker of the House and new Senator from the state of Maine, James G. Blaine, was a strong contender, having won the endorsement of numerous Republican state conventions across the nation. However, as the convention neared, he was also in the midst of fending off allegations of scandal related to assistance he had provided while Speaker in thwarting a motion in Congress, quote, to revoke a land grant for the Little Rock and Fort Smith Railroad. After the motion was done away with, Blaine was given the opportunity to sell bonds for the railroad on commission, and then, when problems came with the bonds he sold, he received a $64,000 loan from the president of the Union Pacific Railroad to buy back the bonds, and the Union Pacific president conveniently forgot to ever call in the loan. While it's beyond the scope of this episode to go into too much detail about Blaine's under-the-table dealings, it's important for us to recognize that Blaine had a strong following. As noted by historian Roy Morris Jr., quote, to his many supporters, Blaineyacs they styled themselves, he, Blaine, was practically a force of nature. They called him the Magnetic Man and marveled at his remarkable memory for names and faces, the seemingly irresistible way he had of drawing people into his orbit. During Grant's presidency, Blaine had balanced, quote, between supporting the president personally and criticizing the scandalous doings of those around him. Though Blaine had a large amount of support behind him, the hypocrisy of criticizing the scandals of Grant's administration, while at the same time allegations of his own dirty dealing being made public before the Republican National Convention of 1876, meant his chances would take a hit. But no one could predict just how much damage had been done until the ballots started to be counted. Meanwhile, President Grant's favorite candidate to succeed him was Secretary of State Hamilton Fish. According to historian Ron Chernow, Secretary Fish had been, quote, his most intimate confidant, and thus Grant drafted a letter of support which he authorized his agents at the Republican National Convention to distribute if they saw an opening for Fish to emerge as a dark horse candidate, a possibility that the president increasingly believed would come to play as the convention neared. You'll be forgiven, dear listener, if you're asking the question, Hamilton who? As Secretary Fish, despite his influence in the Grant administration, is not all that well-known by subsequent generations. Still, thanks to the impact he had made, and due to his good reputation, even cartoonist Thomas Nass got behind Fish's candidacy, drawing a cartoon presenting Hamilton Fish as the Republican nominee for president and the man who would ultimately win the nomination as Fish's running mate. Former Representative Kenneth Rayner, Republican from North Carolina, also endorsed Fish in a letter published in the New York Times. However, there were a couple of problems with Fish's candidacy. First and foremost, Fish would be 68 years old by Election Day. To that point, the only person inaugurated who had been that advanced in age had been William Henry Harrison in 1841. And, well, we all know what happened to him. Further, Fish was not the only alum of the Grant administration in contention. Benjamin Bristow of Kentucky had originally entered the Grant administration as the first ever U.S. Solicitor General. He had been a staunch Unionist during the war and had fought with Grant himself. Bristow is known for having a, quote, bluff, hearty demeanor, which pleased the public. 
and as first Solicitor General, then Secretary of the Treasury, have been a key trustworthy figure in the administration. Having demonstrated his independence from the corrupt elements of the executive branch by breaking up the whiskey ring and thus establishing himself as, quote, a veritable symbol of reform, it was felt he would have a strong contingent supporting him in the convention. Ultimately, for reasons beyond the scope of this episode, Bristow would break with Grant and offered his resignation as Secretary of the Treasury to take effect on June 20th after the conclusion of the Republican National Convention. The news was made public, and Bristow would go into the convention as a candidate who would soon have some free time on his hands if, of course, a party might want him to be its nominee for high office. Likewise, Marshall Jewell of Connecticut had been brought into the Grant administration thanks in part to his good reputation. Jewell had served as governor of Connecticut and had been known as a proponent for civil service reform. After having served as U.S. Minister to Russia, Jewell was recalled to take control of the post office in 1874. As noted by historian Ron Chernow, quote, The appointments of Bristow and Jewell as cabinet secretaries were seen as triumphs of good government. But by 1876, as with Bristow, Jewell found himself at odds with Grant due to his reform efforts at the post office to the point that Grant asked for Jewell's resignation. As the convention neared, it was clear that Jewell would be the favorite son choice of the Connecticut delegation on the first ballot, but could he possibly be the dark horse contender that would ultimately come out on top? Surely that's enough candidates for one nomination battle, right? But wait, dear listener, there's more. Blaine wasn't the only Republican senator considering the possibility of moving down Pennsylvania Avenue to the executive mansion in 1877. Senator Roscoe Conkling of New York was just as much, if not more so, a part of the Republican political machine as Blaine. Though we now know that Secretary Fish was Grant's preferred candidate, in political circles and the press, Senator Conkling was perceived to be Grant's chosen successor, something that Conkling would use to his advantage and to Blaine's detriment. As described by historian Michael Holt, quote, A flashy dresser with flaming red hair, Conkling detested Blaine, and he seems to have entered the contest primarily to keep New York's delegates to the National Convention out of Blaine's column. Senator Oliver P. Morden of Indiana, on the other hand, seems to have made an earnest bid for the nomination. Again from Holt, quote, Aside from his service as Indiana's wartime governor in the Civil War, Morden was known primarily for endlessly and ruthlessly waving the bloody shirt, a euphemism for Republican candidates who invoked the soldiers lost during the Civil War to advance more radical Republican ideas. While this meant that Morden enjoyed the support of black Southern Republicans, it also meant that he struggled to gain support from moderates in the party. Further, though a progressive in terms of civil rights issues, Morden was not a fan of civil service reform, as he utilized federal patronage in Indiana to his personal benefit. Thus, the liberal faction of the party was not too keen on him either. As if he needed another liability, Morden had suffered from a severe stroke in 1865 and thus was not in the best of health. Still, he was considered a strong contender for the nomination in 1876. The final contender on the Republican side going into the convention that we must discuss was actually a proxy candidate for another Republican leader in the Senate. Like Conkling, Senator Simon Cameron of Pennsylvania wanted to do all he could to prevent Blaine's winning the nomination. However, Cameron was too damaged of a candidate to run himself. Cameron had served as Lincoln's first Secretary of War and had been ousted due to his inability to manage, as described by historian Doris Kearns Goodwin, quote, the tremendous administrative challenge of leading the War Department in the midst of a civil war, as well as, quote, 
detailed accusations of corruption and inefficiency in the War Department surfacing in newspapers. Though he had failed as a cabinet secretary, Cameron had managed to keep his control over Pennsylvania Republican politics and thus engineered the state Republican convention that year to nominate Pennsylvania Governor John Hartraft as their choice for president. Though painted as a favorite son candidate, Cameron would work to keep the Pennsylvania delegation solid in their support of him and even managed to get a unit rule imposed that would keep delegates from drifting over to the Blaine camp. With a little persistence and patience, who knew what might happen? And if Harthrand might, in fact, end up being the dark horse candidate that President Grant thought would emerge from the convention. Those of you who have read ahead may be asking, what about Rutherford B. Hayes? For the rest of you, you may be asking, who is Rutherford B. Hayes? Hayes was an Ohioan by birth, born in Delaware, Ohio in October 1822. His father had died shortly before his birth, and thus he had been heavily influenced by his uncle, Sardis Burchard. Indeed, as a sign of his ties to that side of the family, Rutherford's middle name, Burchard, was his mother's maiden name. Rutherford, or as he was more commonly known as, Rudd, would have the expenses for his college education provided by Uncle Sardis and would go on to start a law practice in Cincinnati. Rudd's career, however, would be thrown into a different direction by the Civil War when he was commissioned as a major in Ohio's 23rd Volunteer Regiment. From Holt, quote, like so many Union Army officers during the war, he, Hayes, lacked any previous military experience. Nonetheless, his Civil War service was a transforming event of his life, even though his regiment spent most of the war in what is now West Virginia, hardly the epicenter of the conflict. Still, it should be noted on a personal level that Hayes was wounded four times in the conflict and led troops in the Shenandoah Valley against Confederate forces under Jubal Early in 1864. Most importantly for his political future, though, quote, Hayes served with a number of other Ohio Republicans and for the remainder of his life would address them, and they him, by the rank they had earned in the war. While still in active duty service, Hayes was elected to the U.S. House representing the 2nd Congressional District of Ohio in 1864. Though elected to a second term two years later, he would ultimately find himself thrust into another office, that of Governor of Ohio. Though Republicans lost control of the state legislature in the same election cycle, Hayes would narrowly come out on top in the gubernatorial race in 1867, despite the fact that he was facing a strong Democratic contender. Likewise, in 1869, Democrats in Ohio put up a strong candidate, but Hayes managed to double his margin of victory. Two years later, Hayes decided to bow out of a third contest for governor. His prior two campaigns had gotten attention, though. Again, from Holt, quote, Hayes, in short, had defeated the two most prominent Democrats in Ohio in his two runs for governor. Thus, knowing that the race would be tight and that Ohio was a swing state in the presidential election the next year, when Ohio Republicans considered in 1875 how to oust the Democrat who had been elected governor two years prior, they turned back to good old Rudd Hayes. Hayes, however, said no. He didn't want to run for governor again. Alfonso Taft, a judge out of Cincinnati and father to future President William Howard Taft, had expressed an interest in running, and Hayes did not want to stand in Taft's way. However, when it came down to it, the Republican State Convention chose Hayes as its candidate, and Hayes ultimately emerged triumphant over the Democratic candidate in a campaign that saw a significant increase in voter turnout. Though the race was close, it was seen, according to Hayes biographer Ari Hugenboom, quote, that Hayes had united disparate Republicans. We'll discuss the divides in the Republican Party a bit more in a few minutes, but for now, considering that there was a concern that Democrats would stand much more of a fighting chance in 1876 than they had in a bit, 
it is no surprise that Hayes started receiving appeals to run for the presidency and won the endorsement of the Ohio State Republican Party in April. General Philip Sheridan had even written to Governor Hayes in early 1876, asserting that his preference for the Republican ticket was, quote, Hayes and Wheeler, which was flattering to Sheridan's former subordinate in the Army, though Hayes had no clue who Wheeler was. To the other rivals for the nomination, though, they looked at Hayes as a perfect candidate to serve as their running mate, which unbeknownst to them at the time meant that, should President Grant's predictions of a dark horse candidate emerging come to play, heading into the convention, quote, the major candidates objected less to Hayes than to one another. Though they had won every presidential election since 1860, the Republican Party going into the 1876 National Convention was a divided party. Grant's primary challenger for re-election in the previous election cycle had not been a Democrat, but rather a Republican. Starting in 1870, a faction of the Republican Party under Senator Carl Schurz of Missouri and former Senator B. Gratz Brown of Missouri broke off and formed the Liberal Republican Party. As noted by historian Glendon G. Van Dusen, this new party, quote, had come out for universal amnesty and enfranchisement and for tariff reform and against the national administration's painfully one-sided ideas on the subject of the distribution of the patronage. After their initial victories at the polls in Missouri, including the election of Brown as governor that year, the breakaway party started to expand its reach beyond the show-me state and ultimately chose newspaper editor Horace Greeley of New York as its candidate for president in 1872. Though Greeley had been defeated by Grant in November of that year, and an olive branch had been extended to the liberal Republicans for them to return to the Republican National Convention in 1876, it was clear that there were remaining divides in the party. The three factions in that year are typically referred to as the Reformers, which was former liberal Republicans, as well as some like former Secretary Bristow that had remained with the main party, the Radicals, which included Senators Conkling and Morton, and the Half-Breeds, a group of moderates between the radicals and the reformers, of which Senator Blaine was seen as the leader. We won't go into the ins and outs of the convention as we have in previous episodes of the special series, as the election itself is not our focus. In the first contested Republican National Convention since 1860, it went pretty much as Grant and other commentators predicted. The larger candidates canceled each other out in ballot after ballot, but Hayes went from 61 votes in the first ballot to 104 votes in the fifth ballot. Finally, he won the nomination on the seventh ballot with 384 votes, or 50.8%, to 351 votes for Blaine and 21 votes for Bristow. True to General Sheridan's prediction, Representative William A. Wheeler of New York was chosen on the first ballot as Hayes' running mate, though there were, of course, still concerns. By and large, Republicans from all of the factions felt that Hayes presented the best chance of uniting the party something that made Democratic leaders fearful upon hearing the news as they felt that they might actually have their best chance in 20 years in putting up a winning candidate. As Jules Rick Cover wrote in his Party of the People, A History of the Democrats, quote, the Democratic Party that survived the Civil War found themselves without strong national leadership or any clear sense of direction. Initially, the party did itself no favors for, as described by Whitcover, quote, The democratic posture of opposition to equal rights and opportunities for all cast the party as a defensive, negative force in those post-Civil War years. Ultimately, though, Democratic leaders would rally the party to accept and embrace certain aspects of Reconstruction, including the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, and forge a new path forward, though still retaining a more conciliatory posture towards Reconstruction, including, quote, a universal amnesty for all who fought for or aided the Confederate cause, in order to position themselves, quote, to welcome Southern Democrats back into the fold. 
However, in the previous election cycle, in what one source describes as, quote, one of the most bizarre national party conventions in American political history, the Democratic Party in 1872 only took six hours to not only endorse the liberal Republicans' nominations for president and vice president, but also adopted the same platform that the liberal Republicans had drafted in their convention. At that point, one had to wonder if there was a future for the Democratic Party at all. But then, the scandals of the Grant administration started to break in 1873 and became an issue on which Democrats could, as an opposition party, campaign. By the time of the 1874 congressional elections, the fortunes for Democrats had shifted so swiftly that they went from having 88 seats in the 43rd Congress to winning a majority of 182 out of 293 seats in the 44th Congress, resulting in James G. Blaine losing his position as Speaker of the House. As noted by historian Michael Holt, quote, Between 1872 and the 1874-1875 congressional elections, the Democratic vote increased in every region of the nation except the border states, where Democrats registered their most crushing victories. To understand that statement, we must understand that the Democrats had, in the post-Civil War period, performed best in the border states. And though Republicans started to make some inroads in some areas of the border states, where Democrats remained strong, they saw increased support in those border regions as they substantially grew their support in other parts of the nation. Holt goes on to explain that, in 1872, Democratic voters had not been as motivated to come out and vote for Greeley, but once Democrats started functioning independently once more, not only did those voters return to the polls, but they were also bolstered by some liberal Republicans who crossed party lines to support Democrats. The question of 1876 would be which party could get more voters out come November. Unlike on the Republican side, there was a clear favorite for the Democratic nomination going into the convention. Samuel J. Tilden was born in the Hudson Valley in New York in 1814, and though described as, quote, pale and sickly as a youth, Tilden read voraciously and developed a lifelong passion for mastering and manipulating numbers. Tilden grew up as a Democrat, and his father was friends with 8th President of the United States, Martin Van Buren. Thus, in the midst of collegiate studies, Tilden took time off to campaign for Van Buren in 1836 and 1840. Tilden, like many political leaders of the time, began his career in legal practice where, quote, as a lawyer obsessed with details, he worked long hours, often for meager pay. Though involved in politics in the 1840s, Tilden focused on his legal practice in the 1850s, which was, quote, now housed in a handsomely furnished suite of offices on Wall Street. He would earn his fortune in the 1850s and 1860s, quote, becoming a millionaire several times over. Due to lifelong health issues, Tilden did not join the war effort in the Civil War, but rather managed the successful gubernatorial campaign of Horatio Seymour in 1862. His reinvolvement in Democratic Party politics in the 1860s meant that he had to deal with boss William M. Tweed, the head of Tammany Hall. Despite Tweed's pivotal role in Democratic politics in New York, when investigations began into Tweed's operations, Tilden would join with those efforts and use his understanding of figures to, quote, unravel the extraordinarily complex money trail in Boss Tweed's books, a feat that ultimately led to Tweed's downfall. Meanwhile, Tilden organized a slate of legislative candidates on a Democratic reform ticket, which ultimately took control of every state assembly and Senate seat in New York City except for Tweed's own seat. Tilden's efforts propelled him to the governor's office in 1874, and, again from Holt, quote, from the moment of his election as governor, Tilden set his eyes on the White House. Now, I imagine that you're saying to yourself that, sure, lots of people have set their aims on the presidency, 
But unlike many of those people, there was a strong contingent who were thinking the same thing about Tilden. Especially considering the corruption scandals of the Grant administration, who better than the man who had helped take down Boss Tweed to clean up Washington? There were, however, still some other folks who wanted to take their chance. As they won't be major players in this episode, I'll only briefly mention a few other also-rans from 1876 on the Democratic side. General Winfield Scott Hancock had his supporters who felt that he could help the party get past the doldrums of the post-Civil War period, as Hancock had a distinguished war record. However, he was seen as being, quote, a bit flaky by some establishment Democrats. Senator Thomas Bayard of Delaware was a favorite of Southern Democrats, but that was a detriment in his chances of earning support from other regions of the nation. Senator Alan Thurman of Ohio had his supporters, but he struggled to even win the endorsement of the Ohio State Democratic Party. Ultimately, Tilden's primary challenger for the Democratic nomination was Indiana Governor Thomas Hendricks. Unlike Tilden, Hendricks had experience at the national level, having served in both the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. He had for decades been a leader in opposing Republican policies. However, Hendricks, too, had his faults in terms of his policies, which, though they appealed to Democrats in the West, were vehemently opposed by Democrats on the eastern seaboard. Thus, it was not too surprising that, on the first ballot, Tilden took a substantial lead of 401.5 votes to Hendricks's 140.5, with six other candidates earning less than 100 votes each. However, as Tilden's vote count was less than two-thirds, a rule in Democratic national conventions that we discussed in detail in Special Episode 6, it would go to a second ballot. In this one, though, Tilden came out the clear winner with 535 votes, or 72.5%, to Hendricks's 85. Hendricks would not leave empty-handed, however. When the vote turned to the vice presidential nominee, Hendricks was the near-unanimous choice of the convention. With the nominees set, all that remained was the campaign in the months between the convention and November. It was when the vote started coming in that this election attained its notoriety. And to understand why, we have to take a moment to look at the South. After the Civil War, the Reconstruction Acts were passed, which divided the 10 states that had not been fully brought back into the Union by 1867 into five military districts. The military commander in each district would be responsible for guiding the civil governments in each state until such a time as a constitutional convention that was, quote, elected by manhood suffrage, had adopted a new constitution that included black suffrage, and had ratified this constitution and the 14th Amendment to the federal constitution. At that point, the military occupation would end, and the state would be allowed to send representatives back to the U.S. Congress. An important point to note in the Reconstruction Acts is that people who were disqualified from holding office by the 14th Amendment were also prohibited from voting for delegates to the state constitutional convention and from voting on ratification of the new state constitution to come out of the convention. For those who need a refresher, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment reads as follows, quote, no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature or as an executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same, or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. But Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds in each House, remove such disability. This was directly aimed at the political and military leaders of the Confederacy 
to prevent them from influencing the reconstruction process in the South. However, whether intentional or an unintended oversight, the Reconstruction Acts did not include a provision to keep the Confederate leaders disenfranchised once the states were fully restored into the Union. And this would come to pose a major problem as, one by one, Southern states were brought back to full representation with the last states restored in 1870. With the Restoration, Republican leaders began to fear a resurgence of Democratic control of the South, and their fears were increasingly justified as former Confederates launched campaigns of intimidation and violence to keep Republican voters, especially Black, but also in some instances white voters, from going to the polls. Given the growing Democratic strength in states in the North, getting out the vote across the nation was crucial to both campaigns, and in that, Democrats and Republicans succeeded. Around 2 million more men voted in 1876 than had four years earlier, and the voter turnout for the election ended up being 81.8%, the highest recorded voter turnout to date in an American presidential election. It would take weeks before the votes could be fully tabulated, but early returns and reports rolled in throughout the evening on November 7th and into the morning of the 8th, thanks to the Telegraph. At the Republican headquarters at the Fifth Avenue Hotel in New York City, however, the news was not welcome. As described by Holt, quote, even before midnight, a deep gloom had enveloped Republican headquarters. Crowds of the party faithful, eager for news, had long since dispersed in disappointment going home or to a favorite bar to seek solace in strong drink. It was clear that Tilden had won 65 electoral votes in battleground states, including Connecticut, Indiana, New Jersey, and New York. A third of the electoral votes needed to win. As the night went on, Tilden was predicted to have 184 electoral votes, one less than was needed for victory, while Hayes only had 166. Governor Tilden had spent the evening at his campaign's headquarters in New York City to hear the results as people gathered across the city started celebrating what they felt was a landslide Tilden victory. As noted by Morris, quote, everywhere he, Tilden, went, he was showered with cheers. Governor Hayes noted in his diary later that he and his wife Lucy had gone to bed that night thinking that he had lost and reconciling themselves to the result. At this point, though, as the Republican candidate slept, the party machine kicked into gear. Though reports weren't looking good, Florida, Louisiana, and South Carolina were still counting votes, and the counts were close. Between the three of them, they carried 19 electoral votes. If he could win all three, Hayes could still win. If he lost anyone, though, Tilden would be the next president. Daniel Sickles, a former Republican congressman from New York who had served for the majority of Grant's presidency as U.S. Minister to Spain, made his way to the campaign headquarters around midnight, where he found that most everyone had cleared out, thinking that Tilden had won. When Sickles looked at some of the reports coming in, though, he found that a large number of votes were still out in Florida and that the districts in Louisiana and South Carolina with the most black voters had not yet reported. Sickles saw that there was still a chance and thus sprang into action. He sent telegrams to the Republican governors of Louisiana and South Carolina, along with a former Republican senator from Florida, and, for good measure, the Republican state chairman in Oregon. His message to all, quote, With your state sure for Hayes, he is elected. Hold your states. Sickles wanted to get the RNC chairman and Secretary of the Interior, Zachariah Chandler, to sign off on the messages in order to give them more gravitas. But Chairman Chandler, quote, was snoring upstairs in a drunken stupor and the committee clerk would not allow Sickles to put Chandler's name on the telegraphs without his approval. Luckily for Sickles, the New York customs collector Chester A. Arthur showed up at the campaign headquarters and gave his approval to the plan. Meanwhile, 
Managing editor of the New York Times and loyal Republican John C. Reed convinced his editorial board to hold off on declaring Tilden the victor. Instead, the headline of the editorial ran as, quote, a doubtful election, which claimed that Hayes had won Oregon, Louisiana, and South Carolina, and that only Florida was in doubt. As the morning editions went out, Reed got reports that Florida and Oregon were in Hayes' column, and he rushed to the campaign headquarters to share the news. There, he found Republican National Committee member William Chandler, no relation that I've found to Zach Chandler. William Chandler and Reed read through the same reports as Sickles, as well as those that had come in since, and William quickly sent telegraphs of his own out to Florida, Louisiana, Nevada, Oregon, and South Carolina. As they got Zach Chandler up and likely helped him combat his hangover, messages started to come in from Republicans around the nation, and, as described later, quote, it seemed as if the dead had been raised. Though the Telegraph had sped up communication much more than it had been in prior decades, there was still a delay in information, which also led to some false rumors being spread. Hayes, after writing to his son about his defeat, soon got word that the election might still turn in his favor. And neighbors that evening rushed to his house when they heard a report that New York had in fact gone for Hayes. The governor addressed those in attendance, telling them that it was not likely that he had won New York, something that would later be confirmed. Hayes would neither claim victory nor concede and urged patience as the facts were gathered, though he did state that, quote, I think we are defeated. RNC chairman Zach Chandler, on the other hand, claimed victory for Hayes that Wednesday evening, and the New York Times the next morning gave validity to the claim with the headline, quote, The Battle Won, a Republican Victory in the Nation. It wasn't an idle declaration, though, as Chandler had an ace up his sleeve. President Grant had traveled to Philadelphia to attend the closing ceremonies of the Centennial Exhibition, though he had initially told Republican leaders gathered with him that, quote, Gentlemen, it looks to me as if Mr. Tilden was elected. He would soon receive an emergency telegram from Secretary Chandler that would make him question that. Chandler informed Grant that he had sent a train southward in order to verify the election returns in the states in question, but that the train had been, as Chandler dubbed it, clue-cluxed. The train was attacked and thrown off the track. Now, it is unclear as to whether this is the same train that the Republican governor of Florida, Marcellus Stearns, said had been Ku Kluxed when carrying returns from the western counties of the state. Stearns offered no proof to back up his claim when he informed Grant of this, and I've yet to find much in the way of proof and the sources I've consulted to substantiate these Republican claims. Still, because of these reports of Ku Kluxing, Chandler asserted that, quote, there is no doubt of our majority if we can secure an honest canvas, but the indications are that violence is to be freely resorted to to prevent any returns from remote points in the interior. We shall need an army to protect us. Though there were still some federal troops remaining in the South, what Chandler was calling for was a fresh mobilization. President Grant, in addition to ordering troops into the vicinity of Washington, D.C., in case there was any trouble there, sent instructions to General William Tecumseh Sherman to have General Thomas H. Rutger and some troops travel to Florida while General Christopher C. Auger was sent with a force to Louisiana. In his orders, Grant asserted that, quote, should there be any grounds of suspicion of a fraudulent count on either side, it should be reported and denounced at once. No man worthy of the office of president should be willing to hold it if counted in or placed there by fraud. Likewise, William Chandler left New York bound for Florida to be on hand as needed. It should be noted that he brought with him, quote, secret cipher codes to communicate with party headquarters back in New York and a carpet bag stuffed with $10,000 in ready cash. Just in case he hit a rainy day on the trip, I'm sure. 
Democrats, meanwhile, start to grow upset and rally to the call of Tilden or blood. Tilden himself spent November 8th, quote, accepting congratulations and hearing himself addressed as Mr. President. When asked about the conflicting reports coming in, Tilden asserted that, quote, the fiery zealots of the Republican Party may attempt to count me out, but I don't think the better class of Republicans will permit it. It would be a bad precedent to set. Unlike the Republican leadership, however, Tilden and Democratic National Committee Chair Representative Abram Hewitt of New York proved slow to act. As prominent Republican figures followed William Chandler South, Representative Henry Watterson, Democrat from Kentucky, after an outreach to Tilden and his advisors failed to get their attention, took it upon himself to travel to New Orleans to be present for the vote count there and urged both Tilden and other Democratic friends to follow suit. Tilden wouldn't even issue a statement, asserting that, quote, it would be safe to trust to the sense of justice, which sooner or later would show itself in the public mind and make the consummation of the fraud impossible. Ultimately, though, Watterson would not be the only Democrat to head south as 20 Democratic statesmen made their way to Florida and Louisiana. The initial vote count looked like trouble for Hayes. In South Carolina, Though Hayes was narrowly the winner with around 600 to 1,000 votes over Tilden, the fact that Democratic candidate Wade Hampton seemed to have won the gubernatorial race by over 1,100 votes made people suspicious, especially when the incumbent Republican governor and Hampton's opponent in the race, Daniel Chamberlain, refused to concede. In Florida, things weren't looking quite so good for Hayes either, as Tilden was ahead by 91 votes, and the Democratic gubernatorial candidate, George F. Drew, was in the lead by 497 votes. Louisiana looked even less likely to shift Hayes' column, as Tilden's lead after the initial count was somewhere between 6,300 to 8,957 votes over the governor of Ohio. Still, All three states' votes had to be certified by the state returning boards, and as noted by Morris about Louisiana, but was also a possibility in Florida and South Carolina, quote, both sides knew that in the past, the state returning board had shown a marked propensity for reversing decisions of the ballot box. Again from Morris, quote, the makeup of the three boards did not inspire much confidence in Democratic hearts as they were dominated by Republicans. The boards would have to work quickly, though, as December 6th was the date the Electoral College was set to cast its ballots. The South Carolina board met first starting on November 10th, and as by state law, the board only had 10 working days to complete its work. It quickly became embroiled in controversy. Defying a ruling by the state Supreme Court, quote, prohibiting the board from doing anything other than merely sanction the existing vote totals. The board instead threw out the returns from two counties on November 22nd, quote, citing wholesale fraud and intimidation before awarding the state's seven electoral college votes to Hayes. There's another battle going on with the gubernatorial election and control of the state legislature that are beyond the scope of this episode to discuss. But by and large, both parties were willing to agree to South Carolina going for Hayes for the time being in order to allow them an opportunity to devote more attention and resources to the other states. The Louisiana board was next up and met starting on November 17th. Despite Tilden's lead in the state, Democrats were not confident at all, and one of the observers sent a telegram back to Tilden informing him of, quote, well-organized plans supported by troops to cheat us in count of votes. For its part, the board organized itself in such a way to make turning the vote count Hayes easier, as they, quote, agreed to rule openly on the ballots from all uncontested parishes while reserving the right to go in secret session any time one of the members so desired. On November 20th, they began to go over the results, quote, 
canvassing 11 parishes and setting aside five sets of contested returns. The other six returns were handed over to the board's clerks to be tabulated privately in a back room. All the clerks were Republicans. Five were under indictment in criminal courts at the time, and two others have been cleared recently of charges ranging from perjury to murder. At the same time, quote, Republican investigators, aided by soldiers, rounded up some 300 witnesses to allege Democratic abuses. And most of the testimony before the board focused in on a parish in which Tilden had a comfortable majority. On December 1st, the board went in secret session to finish up, and there was little surprise when they announced three days later that Louisiana's eight electoral votes were going to haze. In order to do so, they threw out entirely the votes from two parishes, as well as part of the votes from 22 other parishes. At the time, Louisiana had 57 parishes. In total, the state board had disallowed 15,623 total votes, and 13,211 of those, or nearly 85% of the votes, had been for Tilden. William Chandler, when he arrived in Florida, sent a warning to Hayes that he should, quote, be prepared for an uncomfortable result in the state. As the vote was so close, it was possible for it to be manipulated either way. Thus, Chandler urged the board to take a different approach than Louisiana and South Carolina. Chandler's plan called for the board to wait as long as possible before it met to certify the results. Under state law, the board had 35 days, and Chandler wanted them to make the best use as possible of the time. Democrats, meanwhile, appealed to the federal judiciary in the form of Circuit Court Judge Pleasant W. White to issue, quote, a writ of mandamus ordering the board to convene immediately. Without waiting for a court order, the board agreed to begin counting ballots on November 27th, giving them 10 days before the Electoral College was set to vote. Challenges were presented as soon as they began their work on, quote, the returns from all 38 counties, even sparsely populated Dade County, whose announced totals of nine votes for Hayes and five for Tilden brought peals of laughter from both sides of the room. It was in this challenging process that the Democratic state chairman made a costly mistake. When the returns from Baker County were open and announced as 130 votes for Hayes and 89 votes for Tilden, the state party chairman immediately protested as Baker County was reliably Democratic. However, despite the fact that he had been informed that the board had other returns to open from Baker County, the state party chairman agreed to have the 130 to 89 vote total officially recorded and moved on to another county. Thus, when they were done with the initial vote total, the official record showed Hayes in the lead with 24,337 votes to Tilden's 24,294. Ultimately, the other votes from Baker County were recorded, but by that point, Republican newspapers had spread the claim far and wide that Hayes had won Florida. Slowly, the board went through one county's set of returns after another, and the December 6th deadline loomed. Meanwhile, Another interesting situation was developing in Oregon. Both Democrats and Republicans agreed that Hayes had won Oregon, though the margin had been just over a thousand votes. Thus, the three electors that had been designated for Hayes just had to settle in and wait for early December. There was a problem with one of these electors, though. John W. Watts was a postmaster, and the Constitution clearly stated that, quote, no senator or representative or person holding an office of trust or profit under the United States shall be appointed an elector. Watts, learning of this clause, had consulted with Senator John Mitchell, Republican from Oregon, 
prior to the election, but Mitchell had assured him that, should Hayes win the state, Watts could just quit his position as postmaster, serve as an elector, then be reappointed by Hayes. This did not seem right to Watts, and thus, after the election, he wrote to the Democratic governor of Oregon, Lafayette Grover, informing him of the situation. Both Watts and Grover knew that this irregularity would, quote, force Congress to go behind the certificate, and Grover suspected that it would give Democrats in Congress an opening, quote, to re-examine the board's decisions in South Carolina, Florida, and Louisiana as well. Once news of the Watts matter started circulating, quote, Governor Grover was deluged with demands from other Democrats that he take it upon himself to fill the vacancy with the next highest vote-getter, a Democratic elector who was pledged to Tilden. Though it took him two weeks to reach a final conclusion, that was ultimately the tack that Grover took, declaring that the votes for Watts were invalid, and thus, his Democratic challenger, quote, was the true choice of the Oregon people. With that decision, it looked like Hayes' electoral vote count would go down by one. Meanwhile, on the night of December 5th, leading into the 6th, the Florida board in Tallahassee announced that Florida's four electoral votes would go to Hayes, saying that he had won by a margin of only 924 votes. Federal troops had already been mobilized to the state capitol grounds in case there was trouble, and apparently someone cut the telegraph lines running into Tallahassee. Despite this, a reporter for the Atlanta Constitution got a wagon and raced off to a nearby village to get access to a telegraph and share the news with the nation. One of the Democratic observers in Florida remarked that, quote, the dark deed of infamy is done by throwing out Democratic counties and precincts in the teeth of the evidence and in shameless violation of the law. The drama continued on December 6th when the electors met in their respective state capitals to cast their ballots for president and vice president. In four states, however, two sets of election certificates would be filed and sent on to Washington. For Florida, Louisiana, and South Carolina, Republicans would submit one election certificate in each state for Hayes that was signed by the incumbent Republican governor of each state. Democrats, however, submitted another election certificate in favor of Tilden. South Carolina's would not have an official signature on it, but Florida's would be signed by its Democratic State Attorney General William Koch, and Louisiana's would be signed by John McEnry, who had been the contested Democratic claimant to the governorship in the 1872 election. Oregon, meanwhile, was its own hot mess. Though Governor Grover had already issued the official elector certificates to the two Republican electors and the one Democratic elector, E.A. Cronin, Oregon Secretary of State Stephen Chadwick, also a Democrat, had signed off on the official election returns, which still showed John Watts as one of the three electors. The problem with this was that, under Oregon state law, a vacancy in the state's electors would then be filled by the choice of the other electors for an alternate. Governor Grover had been very clear that Watts' initial candidacy had been invalid in order to sidestep the vacancy issue. Now, Secretary of State Chadwick had unknowingly opened up that can of worms again through A, signing the official election returns, and B, hand-delivering the governor's official certificates to Cronin to give to his fellow electors. When the 6th came, the two Republicans and Cronin met in Salem, but Cronin refused to hand over the governor's certificates to the two Republicans. As they didn't want to recognize his legitimacy to begin with, they simply declared themselves in session as a party of two and, deeming there to be a vacancy from the official election results, appointed Watts to fill his own vacancy. The three then promptly awarded their votes to Hayes. 
Cronin, meanwhile, got two Democrats, declared his own Electoral College meeting to be in session, appointed them to fill the vacancies with the two official certificates from the governor, and the three recorded two electoral votes for Hayes and one for Tilden. Governor Grover would sign off on Cronin's certificate, but the Republican electors sent theirs in to Washington as well. With the conflicting Electoral College votes, there were still 20 votes up for grabs. By this point, though, Governor Hayes had started to believe the reports that the election was his. On the evening of the 6th, Hayes received visitors congratulating him and wrote to a longtime supporter that, quote, I have no doubt that we are justly and legally entitled to the presidency. It would all depend now on what happened in Washington, D.C. One Democrat had sent a message to Governor Tilden on November 22nd asserting that, quote, if the House stands firm, all will come out right. As stated earlier, Democrats had taken the U.S. House of Representatives in the midterm, and as soon as the congressional session began on December 4th, the Speaker of the House, Samuel J. Randall, Democrat from Pennsylvania, wrote to Tilden asserting that, quote, he promised to heed any instructions Tilden cared to send him in order to see Tilden elected. True to form, Representative Abram Hewitt introduced a resolution on the opening day of the session for the House to, quote, send committees to Florida, Louisiana, and South Carolina to expose the fraudulent findings of the Republican returning boards. The measure passed, and the committees, which were comprised primarily of Democrats, set off to the three states. It came as no surprise when the committee sent to Florida and Louisiana said that those states should have gone to Tilden. The committee sent to South Carolina, however, agreed that Hayes had won that state fair and square. House Democrats at large, however, were not willing to accept that committee's findings. Instead, they ruled that, quote, because of the intimidating presence of federal marshals and troops in the Palmetto State during the election, South Carolina's electoral votes should be voided entirely, going neither to Hayes nor Tilden. The House, however, was not the only part of Congress investigating the returns. The Republican-led Senate likewise sent subcommittees to Florida, Louisiana, and South Carolina, but their purpose was a little different. The charge from Senate Republican leaders was that the subcommittees should, quote, gather evidence that blacks had been prevented from voting by fraud and intimidation. The Senate, however, was at a disadvantage due to something called the 22nd Joint Rule. This rule, which applied to the Congress as a whole, involved counting the electoral votes. Once the electoral ballots were opened in the joint session of Congress in February, quote, any senator or representative could challenge any or all electoral votes from a state, and the two legislative halves would go back to a separate session in their own chamber, quote, and vote without any debate to sustain or reject the objection. If either house by majority vote sustained the objection, the electoral votes would be thrown out. In that scenario, the badly needed Hayes votes from the three states in question would be out of the picture, and with the threshold of electoral votes needed to win lowered, Tilden would have more than enough to be elected. The problem here, however, was that the Senate had in fact voted to repeal the joint rule thanks to the work of Senator and one-time candidate for the Republican nomination for president, Oliver P. Morton of Indiana, who had predicted that the joint rule might just be a problem on down the line. Now, we should note that the House never agreed to repeal the joint rule, and thus, House Democrats argued that the rule was still in effect, as the repeal of a joint rule would require the agreement of both houses of Congress. The Republicans, meanwhile, based on, as Holt calls it, quote, the sparse language of the 12th Amendment, asserted that, quote, the President of the Senate had the exclusive power and authority to count the electoral votes and resolve disputes over contested returns from different states. There was a little bit of a problem here, as the president of the Senate was typically the vice president, 
But Grant's second vice president, Henry Wilson, had died back in 1875, and vice presidents who died in office at the time were not replaced until the next election cycle. However, in the absence of the vice president, the Senate elected a president pro tem to carry out the functions of the president of the Senate. And at that point, it was Senator Thomas W. Ferry of Michigan, a Republican. If your head is spinning at all these twists and turns, dear listener, you can only imagine what it was like for folks at the time. Naturally, Democrats outside of Washington, D.C. began working to rally public support for Tilden and organize public meetings in various state capitals as December gave way to January. There was just one problem in their efforts, however. Tilden. Governor Tilden, rather than hitting the road to get the public behind his cause, are, indeed, even issuing regular statements. Instead, spent most of December supervising work on, quote, a legal tome, for which he wrote the introduction, entitled The Presidential Counts. As described by Holt, quote, This hefty volume was a compilation of all historical precedents for counting electoral votes in Congress. While an admirable work of scholarship, as you can imagine, it did not impress the Democratic Party forces across the nation. A Democrat in Pennsylvania as early as December 1st asserted that Tilden and the DNC, quote, have exhibited a weakness at which the whole Democratic Party have been quite shocked. Tilden's biographer, Alexander Clarence Flick, described Tilden's strategy as one of, quote-unquote, watchful waiting, but also argued that this was not a period of inactivity, as it has sometimes been betrayed in some histories of this election. Rather, the governor was working behind the scenes, receiving regular reports, and sharing his views with, quote, all who consulted him. Morris, however, in his study of the election, found that Democratic leaders in Washington were not aware of Tilden's efforts with the presidential counts, and that, indeed, there was a Democratic congressman working at the same time on a similar effort. Morris concluded that, quote, the lack of communication between New York and Washington pointed up to a larger problem faced by the Democrats, the lack of a focused, carefully orchestrated plan to seat their candidate in the White House. Governor Hayes, meanwhile, had also opted to stay out of the fray, though he was increasingly feeling that, had all things been equal, he would be the victor. He wrote to Senator John Sherman, Republican from Ohio, that, quote, We are not to allow our friends to defeat one outrage and fraud by another. There must be nothing crooked on our part. Let Mr. Tilden have the place by violence, intimidation, and fraud, rather than to undertake to prevent it by means that will not bear the severest scrutiny. In December, he was writing to supporters and acquaintances that he felt that he had been, quote, fairly, honestly, and lawfully elected, and agreed with the argument that the president of the Senate had exclusive control over settling disputes in electoral votes. Like Tilden, Hayes did not publicly work on his own behalf, but received regular reports, kept up his correspondence, and trusted that, quote, a general acquiescence in the result among judicious men of all parties would see him confirmed as the winner. Again, though, Morris provides some additional information beyond the traditional narratives of this part of the contest. Quote, Hayes owed his newfound optimism, at least in part, to a series of behind-the-scenes meetings he and his advisors had initiated with various Southern Democrats who were no longer convinced, if they ever had been, that Tilden had won the election on November 7th. Rather than devoting his effort to developing a legal tome outlining his case, Hayes was, quote, reaching out to individuals who might materially affect his chances of becoming president. This included Republican leaders like President Grant and Senator Roscoe Conkling to ensure that the party stayed unified in its efforts. 
In order to break the impasse over who would settle electoral vote challenges, a moderate Republican, Senator George McCrary of Iowa, introduced a resolution on December 7th calling for a special bipartisan committee to determine, quote, such a measure, either legislative or constitutional, to resolve the crisis by determining questions that may arise as to the legality and validity of returns made of such votes by the several states. The resolution passed, and four Democrats and three Republicans were chosen for the committee. It should be noted that Representative Abram Hewitt, the same Abram Hewitt who is also chairman of the DNC, was one of the four Democrats on the committee. Meanwhile, the Senate likewise developed its own bipartisan committee made up of four Republicans and three Democrats to determine how to resolve the electoral disputes. However, they soon realized that, in order to have any hope of ending the deadlock, they should combine into a joint committee on electoral count, which they did in early January. The only problem now was that this new joint committee found itself deadlocked with seven Democrats and seven Republicans, none of whom were willing to budge from their respective party's position. They would need to bring on at least one other member to break the tie, and they turned to the Supreme Court as a possibility. Initially, Republicans proposed that Chief Justice Morrison Waite and four associate justices chosen by lot should join the committee. But Democrats objected to Waite's inclusion since he was a friend of the Hayes family. Finally, the two sides agreed on January 17th to a 15-man commission that would be composed of 10 congressional members and five Supreme Court associate justices. Four of the five justices chosen would bring a geographic as well as partisan balance to the new commission and it was assumed that the four would choose Associate Justice David Davis of Illinois, a noted independent, as the fifth justice. Now, they had to get both of the candidates, as well as Congress, to sign off on it. Representative Abram Hewitt went to talk with Governor Tilden, while former Senator Carl Schurz reached out to Governor Hayes. Neither man was happy about the plan. Tilden thought that resolving electoral disputes should be left to the House of Representatives, while Hayes argued that the commission was unconstitutional. By this point, though, it was clear that a solution needed to be put into place and quickly. Rumors were starting to circulate that Republicans planned to use the military to get New York to submit, or that Republicans planned to take Democratic leaders captive. Tilden Minutemen clubs started popping up in the Midwest, while the Democratic Veteran Soldiers Association told its members, quote, that they might have to put their old uniforms back on soon and fight for freedom and justice. President Grant, meanwhile, issued a statement warning against, quote, any demonstration or warlike concentration of men threatening the peace of Washington, D.C., or endangering the security of public property or treasure of the government. As Democratic leaders start to call in party members to peacefully assemble in the nation's capital in support of Tilden, tensions were rising and Congress had to act. Thus, on January 26th, the Senate passed the Electoral Commission bill first by a 47 to 17 vote, and the House followed suit that afternoon with a vote of 238 to 103. As the voting was going on, though, news was starting to filter in from Springfield, Illinois. The previous evening, the state legislature had named Justice David Davis as the new U.S. Senator from Illinois to replace Republican Senator John A. Logan. This had come about thanks to Democratic legislators joining with eight members of the Greenback Party to elect Davis and break their own deadlock, which had persisted for weeks. Republicans immediately started crying foul, asserting that Davis had made a deal with Democrats to get the Senate seat in exchange for voting to elect Tilden through the Electoral Commission. If that was the case, though, Davis quickly changed the narrative by refusing to serve on the commission. 
This meant that the last seat on the commission would have to be filled by one of the remaining Republican justices. The person chosen was Associate Justice Joseph P. Bradley of New Jersey, who seemed to Democrats an acceptable choice. Though a Republican, they felt that Bradley was, quote, an able lawyer and a man of the highest integrity. Little did they know, though, that Bradley was involved in a scheme by Pennsylvania railroad magnate Tom Scott to establish a new railroad that would run from Texas to the Pacific coast on a southern route. Scott had been working behind the scenes on Hayes' behalf to get the support of Southern Democrats in exchange for a Hayes administration being in favor of the new railroad. And now, he had someone looking out for his interest as the key vote on the Electoral Commission. The commission got to work on January 31st in the Supreme Court chamber in the U.S. Capitol, establishing its rules and procedures, while Congress made official what everyone already knew on February 1st by counting the electoral votes and finding, of course, a dispute in the electoral ballots from Florida, the first of the four states in terms of alphabetical order. Thus, representatives for Hayes and Tilden made their way to the commission to argue their case. The arguments wrapped up on February 5th, and the commission went into private session to discuss the Florida issue. The congressmen all expressed their thoughts on the matter, which, to no one's surprise, was along party lines. However, the day grew late before they could hear from the Supreme Court justices, so they agreed to reconvene on the 7th. Now, there is an allegation that a visiting friend of Justice Bradley's had told Representative Abram Hewitt and other Democrats that he had seen Bradley's written opinion on the matter and that he intended to rule for Tilden. However, supposedly, Secretary of the Navy George Robeson and Senator Frederick Freilinghusen, both from New Jersey, like Bradley, visited the Associate Justice on the evening of the 6th and convinced him to change his mind. Ultimately, whether there was any persuasion to change his mind or if the Justice intended to vote as he did to begin with, Bradley would side with the Republican members of the commission and award Florida's four electoral votes to Hayes on February 9th. When the news was announced to a joint session of Congress the next day, Democrats immediately objected and put forward a motion in the House to reject the commission's ruling on Florida. By the terms of the commission bill, however, as the Senate voted 44 to 24 to accept the decision of the commission, there was little Democrats could do, and Florida's electoral votes went to Hayes. Following that, the commission was asked to rule on the electoral votes for Louisiana, Oregon, and South Carolina, and each time, Justice Bradley sought it with the Republicans, and all of the votes went to Hayes. It wouldn't be until just after 4 a.m. on March 2, 1877, when Congress would finally finish the electoral vote count that had begun on February 1st and was able to announce that Rutherford B. Hayes would be taking the oath of office as the 19th President of the United States in two days' time. Hayes would work in his four years as President to clean up the corruption of the Grant administration, but his historical reputation would be forever tarnished due to the means by which he came to office. He would come to be saddled with the unfortunate nicknames of his fraudulency and Rutherford, as well as the legacy of the end of Reconstruction and its adverse effects on African Americans in the South due to deals reached on his behalf in the turmoil of the disputed election to withdraw federal troops from the former Confederate states. Hayes cannot be completely absolved from his responsibility in this, for As commander-in-chief, the orders for the withdrawal came from him. Also, as we've seen in this episode, Hayes was involved in some of the negotiations which got Southern leaders, as well as business interests, to move the needle his way and deny Tilden the presidency. As for Tilden, he would be seen as a potential candidate again in 1880, 
And indeed, there are indications that Tilden may have wanted to receive his party's nomination once more as a vindication. However, he did not openly campaign for the nomination, and before the second nominating ballot, had his name withdrawn completely from the contest. Though Tilden would not run for president again, Democrats expressed their thoughts about how he was treated in the election of 1876 in their party platform in 1880, in which they denounced, quote-unquote, the great fraud of the prior election and sought vindication for, quote, this crime. If anything in this episode has sounded familiar for our contemporary listeners in the last days of 2020 or the beginning of 2021, I'll confess that working on this episode, some of the quotes that I found sounded like they could have been delivered on a cable news interview or tweeted out in the last day or so. With these similarities, researching this episode has given me perspective on the ins and outs that we've seen in this unprecedented election. We'll have to see how long it takes the current situation to unfold. But I hope that this has given you some insight on another time when it wasn't immediately clear who the next president would be. I have faith that we'll find our way through the current turmoil, and I hope that the path that we forge ahead will be one that posterity will look on more positively than we currently look back on the consequences of the election of 1876. It's up to each of us, each and every day, to learn from one another and to work together with perseverance and patience to build that brighter future. Speaking of working together, I'd like to thank Andrew Foncook for his audio editing work on this episode. It's always a pleasure working with Andrew, and having his assistance with this episode ensured that I was able to launch it before the end of the year. If you would like to get Andrew's assistance for your podcast or any other audio editing project you may be working on, he can be reached at P-A-N-K-A-C-E place, that's all one word, at gmail.com. I'll also have his email address on the source notes page for this episode. Thanks so much to our opening quote readers, Dave, Kenny, and Alex. And be sure to check the source notes page for this episode to find links to their podcast. You can find that at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. On the website, you can also find past episodes of the podcast, in addition to links to more info on presidential history, links to the various platforms through which you can subscribe to the podcast, and information on the ways that you, yes, you, dear listener, can help to support the podcast, including but not limited to becoming a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com slash presidencies and signing up. For as little as a dollar per month, you can join our other patrons in keeping presidencies going well into our own second term. That's right. The podcast will be celebrating its fourth anniversary in January, and we've still got much more presidential history to discuss. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to reach out to me via email at presidenciespodcast. That's all one word at gmail.com. You can also follow me on social media if you don't already. I can be found on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast, again, all one word. Finally, I can't thank you enough for listening. Until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends.
Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast.